I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Joining you today, as always, Mr. Mark Daly of Coquitlam, British Columbia, and also Mark Hamilton, also of Coquitlam, British Columbia. And for those of you that are listening outside of the British Columbia Lower Mainland, that probably means nothing, but (laughs) we are based in a suburb of the fantastic city of Vancouver, British Columbia, which is probably about as detached from the world of motorsport as you can possibly be. You know what? We're sitting here. We're 31 days out from the opening race of the 2021 Formula One season. We are 24 days, and this to me is a little bit more important we are 24 days out from the release of the new aston martin formula one merchandise now that is what i am excited about aston martin formula one take my money here it (laughs) is i am incredibly excited for that and and it's crazy too because you and i have been sitting here doing these podcasts now for what december jet three months and every single week like there's so much to talk about there's so much to talk about the 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 f1 buzz really hasn't died down this off season but we're inching closer and closer like we're 31 days out from the start of the season and between now and the start of the season we've got four or five more teams introduce their car we've got winter testing there's a ton of stuff to happen in the next month and if we think we've been busy so far, my gosh, we're going to have a lot to talk about. And I know we've got a great agenda today, but my friend, you know what? We're deep into this, this COVID pandemic. I think we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Spring is coming slowly, even though we got a splash of snow last night that was unexpected. Yeah, that was How are you doing? I'm doing great. I mean, extremely busy on my side, but I was just thinking as you, you were just uh, leading the show in there just now, just about like the all the things that we've been talking about since we officially relaunched the podcast together a couple of months ago. And I don't know if it's just... Um, you know, part of the reason is the renewed uh, enthusiasm that I have, you know, teaming up with you to do the show and everything and all the plans that we have. And uh, I, well, that's a lot to do with it. But it just also seems like there's been an abnormally bigger volume of off-season, mid-season, you know, you know, between the season, whatever you want to call it, off-season. Let's go with off-season. Off-season news that I recall in in many, many years. And that has just been so exciting. I mean, there's so many things that, that, that are just going on at the moment, just apart from the regular, you know, you know, off-season things that we have each and every year with the car launches, the winter testing and everything like that. And it's been, especially on a crazy week like that, that I've been having this week, it's been really, really hard to keep up when I've just sort of been scrolling through head lines and everything like that. When I grab my phone first thing in the morning, I'm going through Instagram and going through Twitter and Facebook occasionally. And uh, it's exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, uh, it still seems like a long way away, 31 days until we get to to the first race of the year, but it's going to come fast now. I mean, once I always find that it seems to drag over the, 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 the months of December and January. But as soon as you get that 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 initial that first car launch of the season, it seems that time just accelerates until you hit uh, you know the first race of the year, and then it's you know we're 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 right back into it. It's exciting. This is like a Christmas Eve for Formula One fans. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and it's funny too, you know, it feels like it was out a couple of days ago when I was out running listening to this podcast, but it's probably about 10 years ago. But I, I remember listening to this sports business analyst and he was talking at the time about the fact that the NFL, and again, I don't want to get too off topic, but over here in North America, of all the sports, the NFL is the big king daddy. But one of the things that the NFL has always been really good with is generating interest and buzz in the offseason. It has a relatively short season. It's 16 weeks. It's a short playoff. But they'd always done a really good job of sustaining interest in the offseason. And the NBA is even better than it than the NFL is at that. And if you follow the NBA, um, there's all kinds of analysts that look at this. But the number of social media impressions that the NBA gets in the offseason are greater than those in even the playoffs. There's more interest around the NBA in the offseason because of trades and the draft and free agency. There's more interest in the offseason than there is even in the season. And what we're starting to see with Formula One is very much the same. One, there's this huge kind of intake of new fans. There's this new demo. So a lot of folks, just like we talked about last week, that are part of that drive to survive generation that are exposed to the sport, but they're in tune with social media and Twitter and all those kind of things. So you're seeing the sustained interest in the offseason. And of course, the other benefit is after Bernie finally exited the sports, um, Formula One itself embraced social media. So there is this sustained level of interest and exposure throughout the offseason. And I think, you know what, prior to 2016, 2017, interest in news around Formula One cratered as, as, as soon as that final race happened. And sometimes even sooner if the championship was decided, like you look at 2015 and that, that title was decided in June for crying out loud, interest craters, but the sport's starting to do a really good job of sustaining interest during the offseason. And I think, you know, you were sharing some of the data with me about this show the other day, and you can see that in the ratings and the downloads associated with this show. Like, they're pretty strong given the fact that we've been babbling away about Sergio Perez and the Lewis Hamilton contract <laughs> for the past three months. I know it, it is amazing, uh, and it just goes to show that uh, that uh, that the numbers are increasing, which is exciting. But also to maintain basically mid-season numbers in historically the lowest point of the year is extremely exciting. And you touched on a really great uh, point there, just about the the drive to survive uh, generation. We had a, an email in the mailbag uh, this week from Brian McCarthy, uh, touching base all the way from uh, beautiful Ireland. I got a bit of Irish blood in me, so uh, we'll, we'll, we're not quite brothers, but we're we're getting there. So, anyway, so thanks for the email, Brian. And he had to say, among other things, um, he said, "I'm a big fan of the pod. I've been listening for about a year now since I got into F1. I too got into Formula One last year after watching Drive to Survive, and without having any prior no knowledge of F1, I." can say is honestly one of the best shows I've ever watched. I'm really looking forward to the next season. So, you know, the, the F1 drive to survive generation, it's a thing. It's legit now. I mean, th this that's just two emails we've had in the past uh, week. And it's kind of funny. I'm kind of getting to the point now that uh, I, I feel that one of these days I may actually be able to go out of my house wearing some F1 merch like I'm wearing now or you are. And uh, somebody might actually realize what it is, uh, other than the fact that uh, you're wearing a Mercedes branded cap, that they might realize, oh, that's a special edition Lewis Hamilton, uh, you know, that, that, so I think it's really, really cool. And uh, there you go, really rocking the, the, the special edition British Grand Prix hat. 
But it is really cool to see how that uh, that that program went and how it got people in. And I have to admit, when I watched the first season, we, we've talked about this now several times, how it really hooked me. And I was really excited to learn this week that season three drops in just a couple of weeks from now. Season three uh, debuts. It's available to stream on March 19th on Netflix. That's really, really cool. And, and full disclosure here, guys, I have two episodes to go in season two. I, I'm I'm horrible at this. I don't know if this is a me thing or what. But I love to binge my favorite series on Netflix or, or whatever um, other streaming platforms. But I'm horrible. I'll go watch like all but say one or two episodes of a season or a series or something like that because it just always in the back of my mind is like I'm still watching this because I always feel a bit of disappointment when it's all over. And this way it kind of prolongs the enjoyment. I don't know if that's a me thing or if anybody else that there does that, but uh, that's just me. So I'll catch up now that I know that there's a new season coming two weeks from now. I can watch safely watch the final two episodes of season two and then go straight to season three and then leave two season or two episodes from that uh, season as well <laughs> you know come start of it's April. so funny it's funny you bring that up because my approach is like i don't be, i can't binge anything like i like if i find something i enjoy i try to stretch it out over years and years and years so i can <laughs> savor it and and i did that with the last dance that fantastic chicago bulls documentary yeah. that was also on netflix last spring um i still haven't finished it i've got like two episodes Same left here. to go yep. <laughs> um and and even like stranger things on netflix i think i'm still only halfway through season one um and it maybe gets to the point where i just have to write it off and kind of appreciate it. i'm never going to get back there but i am so <laughs> pumped for this and they've released a, a little bit of teaser footage we've seen some screenshots box to box films the company that produces this um does an exceptional job we'd reported last week well we've reported we mentioned that they themselves had put out a tweet indicating that that they concluded the product, but uh, obviously very, very, very excited that that's going to be dropping soon. And the timing is perfect too, because it comes out about a week and a half before the season begins. I think it's the Friday of the week before the season starts. So you got seven days to get your binge on before free practice and qualifying kicks off in uh, Bathrain. It's it's an ideal way to really sort of whet your appetite and really get into um, get into the the, the new season. I, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, when I initially heard that they were involved to to be doing the whole Drive to Survive uh, series, I was really excited because a number of years ago now, and you know, I don't know if it's just my brother or it really is this old, but I actually have the DVD for the Senna documentary that they did. And that for a while, I don't know if it still is. It used to be on uh, on Netflix. Uh, I don't think it is anymore. But uh, I was just. Uh, it was just a phenomenal documentary that they did. I mean, I, I can still never get past the part that weekend in Imola back in 1994. We had Roland Ratzenberger killed in practice on the Saturday and then Senna killed the, the, the next day during the race. And uh, it, it it is so well done. I mean, when I watched it, I was fully immersed in it. Uh, I really re felt like I was reliving that uh, that time in my life when you know I was in, in, in my teens and enjoying Formula One, and um, so I, I knew what these guys could do, and uh, they did not uh, disappoint. So yeah, really looking forward to to season three. Um, well, we do have a lot of things to talk about here, and maybe I'm going to say I'll, I'll come back to the uh, the the email here, the uh, one of the other emails we have in the in 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 the mailbag because it kind of jumps ahead a little ways. Before we do that. Um, there's quite a lot of, uh, you know, stories about the season itself, kind of like a back end kind of stories, if you want to call it that, that really caught my mind. And the first one is the, the, the one that the story that you sent me a couple of days ago, and you were talking about all the COVID and how we're starting to see the perhaps the light at the end of the tunnel. 
But we possibly could see a full house at Silverstone in July for the you know, the, the British Grand Prix, uh, considering the way that the vaccination program is going in the United Kingdom and how cases continue to decline and, you know, cross uh, fingers that it keeps uh, to, to do so. But I was honestly quite shocked when you sent me that story two, three days ago, Mark. Yeah, I, I think on, on the one hand, it gets me it gets me excited because it was and and it feels like it was a lifetime ago it feels like it was an eternity ago but it was just the summer of 2018 when when i was at that event and i spent a couple of days shooting trackside i had great seats for race day it was boiling hot you're surrounded by 100,000 people um and it just I took it all for granted. Like it was great, but I was more concerned about being hot and that when my soda was getting warm because I just took it for granted and just like, you know what, I'll be back next year. I'll be back the year after that. And then of course, what happened last year happened. And, and I think the fact that the organizers are not even cautiously optimistic, they're just straight out, uh, they're straight out flamboyantly excited that this is legit going to happen. So one of the things that I looked at right away was what does the vaccination rate look like in the UK? And I think, I think most of our listeners know the UK for all of the, all of the criticisms that the government's had of the way that the pandemic's been handled in this country. One thing that they're doing very well is the penetration of the vaccine is going very, very well. I think 18 million individuals have been vaccinated at this point, at least had one dose. And I think there's this suggestion that they could be fully reopened for business in April, May. And if this race happens in the summer, um, you could legit see a scenario where there's 100,000 people there on race day. That's exciting because one, to me, that would be, hey, you know what, we're officially on the other side, potentially at least somewhere in the world, we're on that other side in terms of a major developed industrialized economy kind of taking that next step. But for me, it's also exciting because I want nothing more in the world than to get back to Silverstone and be a part of a Formula One race weekend. And and that to me, and it won't be this year for sure, because I, I don't think Canadians are going to be let out, let out of our country anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, for me, it's just it's a, it's a positive sign. So I saw that story again. I'm still super cautiously optimistic. I still, regardless of whether the entire population is vaccinated by that point, I got to think that the health authorities are still going to step in at some point and say, Hey, you know what? This just seems a, a little bit ambitious to be doing it this early. Let's slow, let's slow this down and take a more cautious approach. But I think no matter what, there's going to be fans at that event. Yeah. Um, if you've been to Silverstone, it's obviously a, a, an incredibly big complex and there's significant number of grandstands spread out amongst the track. So even if they wanted to say, Hey, let's, let's house 60,000 race fans on race day. You could put 60,000 people in those seats and they wouldn't be within 20 feet of each other. That's how big that complex is. So I think there's going to be fans. If it's a hundred thousand and they can do it safely. Awesome. If it's 60,000, awesome. It'll just be great to be able to see that atmosphere once again. Well, yeah, the, the, the number that, well, I've been mean, talked about, uh, ambitious, but the, the the number that they're actually throwing out there that they want to get in there on Sunday for race day is 140,000 people, which, uh, wow. you know, considering now we can't congregate in uh, numbers larger than our immediate household, uh, just uh, seems like such a quantum leap. It's uh, I, I can't even uh, imagine it and m- much more. Uh, to the to the point or to build on that is uh, I can't really picture doing anything than my weekly highlights of doing groceries, getting gas and dropping my kids off at school. <laughs> you know, it's just like anything in the in the in the terms of uh, reference of going back to normal life again just uh, seems uh, well, I mean, uh, it's, it's totally. exciting, but uh, a little bit. Um, 
Yeah, a- ambitious, like you say. Uh, another totally. one that really grabbed my attention is a possible return to South Africa for the uh, for for a Grand Prix there. I mean, they have not had a race in South Africa since 1993, and uh, you know, I've been uh, you know a Formula One fan going back that long. I, I can't even remember the last time you know I I, I probably watched that race or at least uh, saw highlights of it, but. This one, I think, is uh, interesting. And, you know, we still see some of these stories popping up. And I remember now, was it last year, the year before? But Chase Carey, for, uh, Formula One CEO, he had to say that the, at one point there was up to 40 venues worldwide that were looking to host a Formula One Grand Prix. And perhaps this is a, a new addition to that list. But I just find it interesting from time to time, some of these names that keep popping up. Now, how feasible or how likely is it to, for, for a race to go back to South Africa? I don't know. But certainly the 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 interest that that, uh, that they have to host a race, I think, is uh, I, I think it's remarkable in itself. I got to wonder, and so I'm not opposed to going back to somewhere like South Africa. And it's funny too, because my memory of that race was less about the on-track action, but more really just the controversy that that race continued to happen when it did, when you talk about the social and social political climate yeah, yeah, of that country. And of course, the country's evolved for the better since then, but it's also a country that economically is in a really, really, really tough place. So I'm not sure necessarily what the end game is here. Maybe it's again, it's again, I think it would be a great thing to have a race on the African continent because we're not there today. And I think it's really, really symbolic for a lot of reasons. And I think if they can do it well and they can stimulate interest domestically in the sport and that this isn't just kind of a one-off showcase where they fly in a bunch of well-heeled sponsors to fill out the stands great i'm also not entirely sure of the condition of the track and can you pronounce it for me so i don't butcher it kialami i think it's like kailami or kailami i I can't remember it's uh, you know my dad actually grew up in south africa uh, really? Yes, yeah, that uh, after the war, they actually, my, my granddad had a job there as a golf professional at a, a course in East London. Anyway, so my dad, from about the age of three to, I think, about 13, lived in South Africa. He would always correct me when I'd uh, completely brutalize uh, any uh, pronunciation of names. But uh, I've, I know a couple of words in Afrikaans because, you know, also being Dutch on uh, my mother's side, there right. is that tie-in. And, uh, you know, it really is interesting. Some of the, I mean, Afrikaans is a language in its own right, uh, but it's interesting interesting to see the sort of the Dutch roots into it. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's always kind of cool. It's, as a country, it's always fascinated me. And I think, um, you know, just the, the prospect of having a race going back to uh, to South Africa, I think it's interesting. I mean, to be a true world championship like, uh, you know, yeah. the Formula One is. I mean, obviously, we have races in North America. We have races in South America. We have races in Asia and the Middle East. But I mean, it, like you say, it has to be more than just a token showcase of, uh, of an event. It has to be real. Uh, it has to be meaningful. It has to have a buy-in, uh, from, from the local population. Moreover, it has to be accessible to the local population as well, to the local people that want to be there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I love the way that you put this. Like for me, it, having a successful track, uh, having a successful event is, is less about what the, the hosting organizers are willing to pay to Liberty. And I think that's part of it, but it's like how deeply integrated can this event 
become in the local community. Like you look at yeah. Australia, like this is this is a part of their identity in Melbourne. This is a part of the community. This is a part of their culture, right? And you can see that in so many other places like Montreal, which is a big festival city. Formula One is just kind of one of the, the kind of highlights of their summer in that city and they build an economy around it. And then you see some of these other tracks and some of these other events. And you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to speak ill of Baku and Azerbaijan and things like that, but really like how invested is the community and can the community even be invested? And to your point, like I would love to see this track be successful and they've done a lot of work on the track, but I would love to see the event be successful in South Africa. But I want to see, I want to see it accessible to the people that live in that community. I want them to be able to buy tickets and attend the race and just be a part of the experience. And if they can do that, I would love to see a race back in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, honestly, I think I've, uh, I have nothing further to add to that, but it would be great. I would love to see it. And I, I would still like to see, I mean, you still hear these rumblings of different, uh, perhaps a race here and a race there. I would really love to see Chase Carey's secret list of uh, formula or, or 40 cities or venues or whatever it is that would love to, to host a Formula One race. But anyways, you did touch on the, uh, the, the Australian Grand Prix and Melbourne. We do have a, a bit of an update there. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment as we take our first break here on the Overtime Media Network. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. All of you listening on the podcast and all of our subs on YouTube watching the show. Welcome to you one and all, however you enjoy the show. Mark and Mark here. I feel like we need like a bit of a, should we go with the shake and bake? I mean, I know that's a Ricky Bobby <laughs> thing. I know that's a NASCAR thing, but, uh, you know, I guess the Mark and Mark kind of has an 80s vibe to it, like Simon and Simon, but whatever. I'm getting off track here, uh, literally and figuratively. Anyways, uh, we need a jingle for this one because you have been bugging me for ages to have like a MotoGP corner, but this one, there is a bit of a tie into that. So apparently the Australian Grand Prix is considering a permanent November date swap with, uh, with the MotoGP event. And uh, it is on the table for as early as 2022 and beyond. I find this really, really interesting. 
and for those of you that are kind of newer to Formula One or you don't remember, uh, there was a point where when the Formula One series um, was held at Adelaide, so prior to transitioning to Melbourne, and there's a whole you could write you could write an entire book about the politics associated with moving the event from Melbourne or from Adelaide to Melbourne. But Adelaide was for the longest time the penultimate event. It was the it was the final event on the calendar. And when Melbourne joined the calendar, it really became a staple, not always at the front of the calendar, but closer to the front of the calendar. So currently in that kind of greater Melbourne um, region, you have Albert Park, which is this phenomenal kind of semi-permanent F1 track in the city core on the waterfront at Albert Park. Um, But the city also holds on the periphery a MotoGP event, and it doesn't use the same track. So there is a track on Phillip Island, which is probably 110 kilometers outside of the city center down to, I would say, the southeast of the city. So if you look at the calendar, if you look at the kind of the the annual 12-month calendar, Melbourne's really blessed because they get this really fantastic um, showcase um, crown jewel F1 race at the beginning of the season in March. And then in the back half of the calendar in October would would be their spring. They get this really fantastic MotoGP event on Phillip Island. And it's, it's funny because... The actual makeup and the nature of the two tracks are worlds different. Like Phillip Island to me feels very much like the windswept coast of Wales. And there is a lot of wind there and it's a very different climate. But it's really, really cool that if you live in that greater Melbourne area, you get to start your year with an F1 race and you get to conclude your year with a MotoGP race. And what's being proposed potentially is that there would be a by biannual or a permanent swap where we would see the MotoGP race pushed to our spring, which would be kind of the Australian fall, um, and that the F1 race would be moved into a later portion of the calendar, potentially. So again, I, I think there's obviously a lot of kind of economic considerations at play here and things like that, but I've always thought it was really interesting that this one mega city is able to sustain um, two world-class motorsports events, and not even sustain, like the, the support for the MotoGP event is really second to none. And this is a country that is absolutely infatuated with motorsports and mm-hmm. motorcycle racing. And of course they, they, they've developed champions. Look at Casey Storer. He won two titles within the last 15 years um, under the Australian flag. But yeah, kind of interesting to see that this is being considered because to me, Australia really represents the start of a new season. It's a fresh start and it's going to be interesting. And I guess we're going to see it this year, right? Because we've seen the Australian Grand Prix moved, but it would be really interesting to see it moved on a kind of a more permanent basis. Yeah, certainly. And a couple of points that I'd like to raise here. First of all, I think that there's a certain amount of prestige, I think, in being the opening race of the season. And they have been wonderful hosts and stewards of that that, that opening Grand Prix for a large number of years. However, I think that because they've been so good at hosting Formula One in, in Melbourne for God only knows how many years now, it's been quite a while that uh, that perhaps maybe it is fitting that they get a date later in the year where there is you know potentially championship uh, implications i mean they've been like i say i mean they've been wonderful stewards of the sport supporters of the sport and uh, to see a world champion crowned or or clinch a world championship at that event I think would be uh, really uh, kind of cool. But then also going back to Adelaide, you know, I, I've got some interesting uh, memories of uh, of Adelaide. One is when Mika Hakkinen had a big crash there in practice, I believe, what was it, about 1997, 1998. And there were real concerns at that time, not just uh, for his health, but whether or not he'd be able to recover fully. And then prior to that, uh, one, one of the earlier memories I have as a child in 1986 is when Nigel Mansell 
in contention for the world championship had his left was a right rear tire explode in the in that race and that cost him the championship and 300 kilometers an hour mind you oh yeah just a shade under 300 kilometers an hour i think it was yeah it it was a crazy crazy thing just go go look it up on youtube it was quite uh, phenomenal i mean he basically went three quarters the length of that straightaway on three tires and as weaving all the way down and all the sparks coming off the under tray that was really quite something and and as a kid being a big fan of Nigel Mansell at the time and, and still am I'd always wondered was that going to be the one opportunity excuse me the one opportunity Nigel had to win that championship and it just got away right. from him yeah Right. I, it, it's funny too. Like we could almost do, and, and I'm thinking it because you and I have talked a lot about what kind of other things could we do in the off season to stimulate interest and things like that. I think there would be real value in going back and exploring the, the Grand Prix that were held in Adelaide back in the day, historically, yeah. and they, they had a 10 year run, but those events were except for a city of one and a half million people. Those events were exceptionally, exceptionally well attended and not to take anything away from Melbourne because they've done just as, just as fantastic a job, but it was a little bit heartbreaking back in the mid nineties that, that, that event ultimately left that city. But, but yeah, it'd be interesting. And to your point as well, I I wonder if like if I'm a host and I'm the one that's coughing up twenty or thirty or forty million dollars a year, you make a really great point. Do I prefer to potentially be that prestigious season opening event, knowing that all eyes, like the exposure that you get for a, kind of that that kind of season kickoff, yeah. versus maybe a race kind of at the back end of the season when maybe the championship is decided, in which case there's no eyeballs, or where it's potentially decided where there's a ton of eyeballs. I don't know what I'd be more interested in in putting my dollars on the line for, but it's an interesting conversation. But you're right, there's something very prestigious about being able to open the season. You know, just a a funny little uh, anecdote uh, before we move on from this topic. A couple of years ago, and I've worn the the, the hat on the show a couple of times. I've got a a Red Bull Danny Ricardo hat. Anyways... I think it was uh, three years ago, I think it was 2018, we're just getting ready to sit down to watch the opening race of the year, and my wife gets a phone call from a friend of hers who was in Australia on vacation, and, you know, a friend of hers from work, and we had she had no idea where she was going, and she gets a phone call quickly, or a text or whatever, and she says, hey, you guys like Formula One, right? And my wife's like, yeah. She said, well, I'm just walking around, and there's like a race going on here, and she's just like, yeah, we're actually sitting down to watch it on TV. Anyway, so so she went and loaded up on a bunch of merch and, you know, it got to the point where we were feeling a little bit kind of guilty because, you know, she had to like pack all this stuff around on a three-week tour of Australia and then bring it all the way back to, to, to Canada. But uh, it was really kind of, uh, it was kind of interesting because uh, she said, oh, what would what, Mark like me to bring back? I'm just like, well, Australian Grand Prix, you're there, you're there right now. It's It's got to be something Danny Ricardo uh, related, so... That was kind of you a cool pickup. You have good friends. You, yeah, have I, some, you have a great circle of friends. Keep them tight. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Okay, well, let's move on to the, the next uh, story. And this one is, this, this is interesting. And I thought that uh, perhaps, uh, you know, well, let's just say it. I, there's no way to, I'm just going to get right to it. Aston Martin definitely tempted to sign Hamilton for 2022. Now, this uh, comes from uh, the owner of uh, the Aston Martin Grand Prix team. That's Lawrence Stroll. And he revealed that he's definitely tempted to sign Lewis next year because, of course, uh, Hamilton's only under contract for one year at Mercedes. And it is, uh, you know, it would be an amazing move. And just the fact that this has been disclosed by Lawrence Stroll himself gives me the... um Gives me less pause to think about this one and, and think that, you know, the way that Lawrence Stroll is, the way that he conducts business, that if he wasn't serious about it, 
he wouldn't say it because Lawrence Stroll does not strike me as the kind of guy that is in Formula One just to say outrageous things just for the point of publicity. Yeah, it's interesting. And and I read some criticism of uh, of this story uh, on Reddit. And part of it was like, look, you know what? This wasn't him coming out and self-declaring interest. He was obviously asked the question and he responded. But the reality is he could have responded in a very different way, which is, hey, you know what? Uh, Lewis Hamilton's a great driver. He's under contract with another team. Any team would be happy to have him. Move on. But the fact that he continued to elaborate really expressed to me that He's probably thought a lot about this. And and it's funny because this is one of those situations where you could start to, you could really start to unpack potential scenarios. And I was talking to my buddy, Randy on WhatsApp about this today. And you start to look at the situation, right? Like for one, Lewis has a one year contract with Mercedes right now, which I think you and I, at least I was really puzzled by. And possibly maybe that's because there's already been conversations about a move to Aston Martin. And then the other part too is, I think we've talked a lot about like, what what is what is Lewis's long-term goals? What are his long-term ambitions? And none of that's really clear to us. But ultimately, Lawrence Stroll, who owns um obviously the, the Aston Martin Formula One team and continues, even this week, continues to increase his stake in the road mm-hmm. car division. If he was to make an attractive offer to Hamilton, it might not just be like, hey, we'll offer you $30 million a year to drive our car, but we can also own you, offer you a slice of ownership in the Aston Martin F1 team. We could offer you a slice of ownership in the road car division. They could do some things that I can't imagine Mercedes would be in a position to do, right? Like anything like that on the Mercedes side, that has to go through the board of governors. Obviously, it's a publicly traded company. It would be a much more complex conversation, but I think Lawrence could do some really creative things. Things to kind of stimulate interest with Hamilton in terms of coming over. And the other consideration too is one, Toto has an ownership, and it's not significant, but Toto as of last year has himself an ownership stake in Aston Martin. The Aston Martin cars, the Formula One cars, feature a Mercedes drivetrain. Like there, there's obviously a lot of commonalities there. And I don't think it would be an impossible transition for Hamilton to make that move from Mercedes to Aston Martin. One, the factories are only about 30 minutes apart. So it's a close drive. The factory is based at Silverstone. We know the money that that Lawrence Stroll is investing in that team. With the new cap, there's they're going to be operating at parity, right? So it's not going to be a position where, well, Mercedes can spend $600 million and, and Lawrence Stroll's team stuck at two or $300 million a year. They're going to be operating under cap. So when you start looking at all these things, like, hey, maybe there's a compelling narrative here and it could all be nothing, but it could also be something. And it's just exciting to talk about. And it got me really excited to be totally honest. Yeah, you know, he's already made a big splash in the driver's market by signing Sebastian Vettel. I mean, Seb obviously is on the rebound, if you want to call him that. I mean, he's had a couple of uh, difficult years at uh, at Ferrari and uh, certainly trying to resurrect his uh, career at this point, uh, at least at the top. I mean, he's still fairly young. I mean, he's early 30s, whereas, you know, Lewis is a little bit older. But I mean, Lawrence Stroll has proven repeatedly over the past couple of years that he's he's not afraid to invest money into Formula One, and I believe that his motives to do so is is for for the right reasons. I mean, of course, there is uh, you know the, the personal exposure and being involved in in Formula One, but I think it's far beyond just a, a vanity program project uh, for for Lawrence yes. Stroll. I think that uh, that he he's there because he wants to be there. He wants to race. And he just doesn't want to be there to make up the numbers. I think he wants to be very, very successful. 
And I think he wants to be involved with a team that can ultimately win races and win championships. And uh, by, you know, taking over that brand of Aston Martin, you know, he's going about and, and, and you know, doing it with a historic mark. I mean, a, a mark that has not been in Formula One for, what is it, 61 years or something like that? It's, Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, Absolutely. Been for a, it's been a long, long time. And, and, you know, the other thing I'll add as well is... There was a little bit when 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 Lawrence first started making overtures towards getting into ownership in the sport and and I think it hasn't been widely reported but there was obviously when he had kind of his sponsorship tie up with Williams when Lance was still driving with that team I think there were some conversations about him becoming a potential minority or majority owner in that team and ultimately didn't go anywhere and I don't think he was happy with the progress of the team anyways but I think when he bought into Force India originally there was a little bit of apprehension specifically because of what you just said like is this just a vanity project that he's standing up to give his kid a seat but I think he has earned a world of respect around the world of Formula 1 amongst the drivers amongst the other teams because this is a guy that came in and bought Force India which had operated on a shoestring budget for a decade he came in he saved hundreds of jobs like he saved because this is a team that alternatively could have gone through the administration process and it's also subsequently been revealed that the other people that were looking at buying into force india had full intentions of gutting the organization and starting over so he came in he bought the team he saved hundreds of jobs and he's done nothing but invest in that team and furthermore he subsequently invested in the road car division of aston martin so he could create a world-class legit works team tie up like i think there's an immense amount of respect for him around the world of formula one and i think given the opportunity if i'm lewis hamilton and ultimately i want to continue racing in the sport and maybe mercedes isn't the right fit like this just seems like such a natural transition it's a team on the come up it's a team that's geographically located near the mercedes team head office it's located near bricksworth it's located at silverstone they're investing money they're doing all the right thing like it just it feels like there's a lot there now the ultimate question is Obviously, you're going to displace Lance, and is Lawrence in a position where he wants to do that, especially if Lance has a really good 2021? Yeah. I don't know, but it's fun to talk about. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, how, how much there really is uh, to the story, who knows, but uh, it'll certainly be one to watch over the next, uh, excuse me, well, the next, uh, well, number of months. Now, moving a little bit further down the grid, Gene Haas, the owner of uh, Haas F1, said, excuse me, I feel like I'm getting the hiccups here. No worries. So Gene, Gene's an interesting guy, yes. right? So he he seems to have a lot to say. And 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 for you, those of you that don't know, Gene Haas has been a, a long time heavily invested member of the NASCAR community. And he made the transition over to Formula One. Haas is, as it stands right now, the newest team because he yeah. actually, it's kind of like an expansion team. Like typically when somebody buys into Formula One, you buy an existing team, you rebrand it. But Haas, curiously, was an all new team from the, actually I say it was 2015, but it was 2016. 2016 they yeah, came correct. in, they were using a heavy mix of Ferrari parts, but he's been, he hasn't been as vocal as I think some have expected, but some of his comments like these ones, which I think you're about to speak to, tend to catch people's yeah. attention when he does say them, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he, basically what he said in an interview with uh, Racer.com is he said that uh, basically Mercedes have killed what Formula One is all about, basically because of uh, their dominance of the sport since 2014 has made the sport uh, boring. So, you know, that that is obviously quite, uh, you know, quite a quote. And anyways, I'll, I'll read a little bit more. And he had to say, quote, and in 2020, when Ferrari had a reduction in their horsepower 
it was pretty obvious that all the Ferrari engine cars had horsepower de- deficits compared to Mercedes, Honda, and Renault. Our boat's uh, tied to the Ferrari ship, so when they're going slow, we're going even slower. I don't think there's much you can do about that. We have no control over the parts we obtain from Ferrari. We have faith that Ferrari can fix the problem, and not only does Ferrari have this problem, but also do Honda and Renault. It's everyone's at a deficit to Mercedes, or a deficit to the Mercedes engine. They build an extremely high performance, high fuel efficiency, durable engine that no other team's been able to come close to. To me, it's really killed Formula One and what it's all about. More power to the Mercedes uh, being uh, able to dominate uh, so much of the thing. But who wants to go to a race when you know who's going to win every frigging race that's out there? It, that just gets boring, end quote. So, I mean, he's being pretty blunt and pretty open and uh, and upfront about it. I mean, when you look at that initial quote that he says, that basically said that they've killed Formula One, you think it's a little bit of sour grapes. But I mean, if you read the quote a little bit more in depth, he does, you know, basically give them props for the the success that they've had is is well earned. But to to me, this sounded more like frustration uh, just at the situation that they're in, because he's also lamenting about the the, the parts that they get from uh, Ferrari, about the engines, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, later on. So there's multiple, multiple things going on there. But uh, I I thought it was a good quote because he's not often a guy that we we really hear a lot from. I mean, uh, you you hear quite a fair amount of quotes from Gunther Steiner. Obviously, he became a bit of a rock star just with the way he dropped F-bombs all over the F1 drive to survive. But uh, he is the money man. He is the name behind the name. So I, I think when uh, when a guy like Gene Haas steps up and say something, I, I think it's worth uh, you know paying attention to. I think for members of that team, I, I think they're often a little bit nervous when they do see and hear from him because I, I think some of the concern within that organization is like, hey, we're five years deep into this Formula One project and yeah. we haven't experienced any meaningful success. Like how long is Gene going to be willing to sustain the costs associated with this? And, and you know, as part of that story this week as well, there was a comment from, there was a quote from Gene and, and it was kind of a defeatist quote, but he said, you know, he's like, you know what? I always talk to the drivers and I think in 18 to 19, we were spending somewhere between 20 and 40 million per year to apply upgrades to the cars throughout the season. And yeah. And he said in this quote, it's like, I would go and talk to the drivers and like, are these upgrades doing anything? And, and they're ultimately like, no, not really. And he's like, so why am I, why am I spending <laughs> this money? So one of the things that I, I really didn't pay a lot of attention to this year, because there wasn't a lot of reasons to pay attention to Haas is that they brought no upgrades to the paddock at all this season. Like the car they rolled out at that initial race is effectively the car they concluded the season with and part of it's because I think he just didn't see the value in spending the money but probably because I think he also felt a little bit defeated because he knew just like that quote you had a couple minutes ago is like as long as we're running this Ferrari power unit we're not going to be competitive so why spend 40 million dollars on upgrades if it's not going to get us any more championship points or get us any more prize money so I, I I worry when I see these comments because if he's the owner of the team and he's the principal investor like you want this guy to be engaged and you want him invested in the team, just like you see with Lawrence Stroll, it worries me that you have an owner on the grid that is resigned to basically being being a loser because of the costs. Yeah. And and ultimately, I think maybe the best thing for the sport at this point, and this is getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I, I think there's some groups outside of Formula One that would love to be involved. Um, I, I don't know that Gene's in this for the long term, especially if they don't see success this year or next year. And I could potentially see a sale. And this is just being purely speculative. But yeah. when I see defeatist comments like this, I'm like, how long is this guy for F1? I, I don't know. 
I know it's. I get the same feeling every because it seems every time he's quoted in the media, it's it's a very similar kind of sentiment that he's expressing. It always leads to me thinking he's he's a guy that already has like one foot out the door. I mean, that, that yes. again, it's yes. it's just speculation in my interpretation, but it um, it it has to be frustrating for him because I mean they had some very and you know very good success initially when they in in their inaugural season in F one. And then, by and large, it's uh, you know it's dried up since then. I mean, last year in 2020, what did we really talk about when it came to Haas? You know, there there's shenanigans at the start of the Hungarian Grand Prix that was, yeah. you know, ultimately kind of sort of, but didn't really work for them, and they ended up getting a, a penalty at the end of the race. But I mean, hey, if you're desperate, and you're not getting results, you'll you'll try everything, anything you can, to try and uh, gain an advantage. But We'll, uh, we'll move on now, and we're going to come up into the show, the portion of the show here now that is uh, very heavily weighted towards a Red Bull. So I think this is... Again, a, every again. week we seem to have this kind of big, meaty section in the middle of the show about Red Bull. I've, I've noticed that. Well, we've got like we've got MotoGP corner, which we need a jingle ba- or a jingle for, mailbag. We need I've a got a few. For. I've got yeah. a few. Yeah, and then we need probably a jingle for Red Bull corner or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, but anyways, we'll talk about that in just a moment, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And yes, as promised, uh, we are going to talk about, well, we we should have had a drum roll there, but uh, well, I guess it's not really a drum roll when I already gave it away before the the, the last break there. But yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Red Bull now. And I, I think for me, they are obviously one of the stories that uh, that we're going to be looking at uh, this year for many many reasons. One is the the Verstappen Perez partnership. One is the final year of Honda. Uh, the, the, well, I mean, there's so many things uh, to, to to talk about with uh, with Red Bull. Anyways, the first quote that really uh, grabbed my attention uh, this week uh, came from uh, Sergio Perez, who says that he feels that his uh, experience in Formula One is what he calls a big weapon in his uh, you know his, his bid to beat Max. Verstappen uh, this year. Well, what do you make of that one, Mark? I, I think I think it's an interesting comment, and and I think that the way I, I think about this is when you're competing and you're driving alongside Max Verstappen, um, the performance and the battle. Because I, I strongly believe it's a battle, right? Like I, I don't think that any teammate of Max's is ever going to be in a situation where they sit down together and they share data and they go for beers. Like I, I feel like based on everything I've seen that that's always going to be a fierce inter-team rivalry. You know, we didn't see it so much with Albon because Albon was so far behind him from a performance perspective. We didn't really see it with Gasly for the same reason, but obviously we saw the relationship with Daniel Ricciardo, who to me seems like the easiest guy in the world to get along with. We saw that deteriorate <laughs> yeah. really quickly. I feel like part Part of this is Perez is having to project this outward confidence um, 
And I, and I think in a sense that one, he needs to be able to perform on the track to kind of establish his position and his role within that team. But part of this too, is he needs to be able to project this confidence outwardly. And I think part of that is also just a byproduct of the fact that this guy is also now a race winner. Like he has won a Grand Prix, which he hadn't until the conclusion of this past season. But I, I think it's an interesting comment and I cannot wait to see what the dynamic is like between these two drivers, because I think the other comment conversation too is I think the presence of Perez will probably get Max on his heels a little bit like I don't think in the past two years Max has felt any pressure within that organization the car is what it is it's designed for Max all of the engineering is invested in building a car for Max he's going to win a couple of Grand Prix there's no expectation that he's going to win a world championship but now all of a sudden he's going to have another guy in the other car that has won a race and has won a race recently like I think this is going to put Max on his heels a little bit and I cannot wait to see how this plays out your thoughts yeah absolutely I I think that's going to be one of those fascinating stories to watch this year is just like how Max V. Uh, Checo Perez is going to turn out because, I mean, obviously in the 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 pairing of Max Verstappen and Pierre Gasly or Max Verstappen and Alex Albon, you you know who the big dog in that uh, in, in that matchup is. I mean, there, there's no question. It was just uh, going to be how fat or how quickly are these guys going to develop and to really. Um, be that sort of second driver and and try and recreate the success that they had with the Danny Ricardo Max Verstappen era. So I mean they're back to a position now where they have two very good race drivers. And now that it is going to be interesting to see, you know, how close is uh, Sergio Perez in terms of lap times and speed? Is he going to be as quick as Max Verstappen? Is he going to be slower? Is he going to be quicker than it can really, uh, you know, really play out to be a very fascinating situation. I mean, I think what uh, what would really blow everybody's mind if uh, Perez comes into the season and and blows Max out of the water. What if it turns out that he's as quick as or quicker as Max? And how does Max, uh, you know, uh, you know, react to that? I mean, you were saying that uh, just now that there's probably not going to be a lot of data sharing between the two. They're probably not going to go out uh, for for ice cream after the race or beers or what you know, whatever it is, right? And uh, I I think that, uh, you know, it would get pretty frosty pretty quickly. I mean, I think that's a a lot of the reason why Danny Ricardo left was that uh, maybe it was never said to him, this is, uh, you know, Max is going to be our number one driver. I don't think that, uh, as far as I know at any rate, that was uh, never publicly said or even said within the team. But I think if Ricardo could obviously see the writing on the wall at that point and realize that, well, you know, if I'm going to have success in my Formula One career, I'm going to have to go elsewhere. But, you know, uh, now it's a completely different uh, situation for Sergio Perez, who's coming in and seeing that as this is an opportunity for somewhere somewhere where he can succeed. Now, whether or not uh, that's going to happen and what it would be allowed to happen would be uh, that's another question. Yeah. And let's not let's not forget as well that the dynamic is the calculus is is also being driven by the fact that Sergio has no security, right? Like he signed a one-year deal with this team. And yep. let's not forget that that Red Bull has kept Alex Albon very close. It's not like he's been dismissed from the academy and he had, no longer has any linkages to the Red Bull family. Like Perez is a 31-year-old driver in a sport where young drivers typically exceed and he has a one-year contract. Like my, my thought is that if I'm Sergio Perez, um, I have I have nothing to to lose by going out there and competing as hard as possible and everything to lose by taking a soft approach and I think he's going to have to go out there and I think his mentality has to be that there is no A driver and B driver 
I just have to do everything I can to be as competitive as possible. And, and if that means, you know what, coming into contact with Max on the track and racing him into corners and ignoring team orders, if there are potentially any, those are the things I've got to do because he has no, he has no security. You know what I mean? And if I'm him, the only way I can secure my future in F1 is to put up as many points on that board as I possibly can. And I also have full confidence that, that Red Bull is one of those teams that probably wouldn't deploy team orders if they sense the presence in a better position and potentially is better praise or pace in any given race. But I, I think that the contract status of Perez really plays into what this season is going to look like. He has nothing to lose and everything to gain by being as competitive as possible. Because the other consideration here too is Ultimately, if he doesn't re-up with Red Bull at the end of the season, there's no guarantee there's going to be another F1 seat for him. And if mm-hmm. there is, it may be on a team that's ultra uncompetitive. And we talked about this last year. It's like how attractive for somebody like Sergio Perez is a seat with Alfa Romeo or Haas or any one of those other teams. So I think he is going to do everything possible psychologically and physically on the track to be competitive this year because he's going to want to re-up for his 30, 30, year 32 season. Well, here, I'm going to throw a, you know, a bit of a, a wrinkle into this one. So we all know that this is Max's team. It's built around him. The car's designed around him. And we talked about the probably unlikely, but you know, it's still a scenario that if, say, Lewis Hamilton doesn't go back to Mercedes next year, that Max is already on their radar. And I mean, why wouldn't right. she be? If uh, you, you're, you're Christian Horner and you've, well, I don't want to say mismanaged that uh, situation with the uh, Ricardo, but <laughs> it, it, it hasn't really worked out for, for, for them to get like a, a solid driver pairing that they've really wanted. I mean, it's been a bit of a revolving door at Red Bull Racing the past uh, couple of years. Would you really want to risk, you know, the, your, your rock star driver, potential world champion that you, you've built the team around, you've thrown a ton of money at, given them a long-term contract, what, 24, 25? I can't even remember when his um, contract expires. And uh, especially if, uh, you know, he's being upstaged a little bit uh, by his teammate, would you really want to... I wouldn't say like intentionally irritate him, but would you really want to maybe start sowing the you know seeds of doubts in in your number one driver's mind, knowing that this situation is potentially there, and maybe give him a, a thought? Well, maybe this isn't the team that's going to get me where I want to be, and you know now Lewis Hamilton is leaving for Mercedes, as pro- you know, which is possibly unlikely. I mean, who knows? I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm just going to put it down. I know that's like kind of a big one, but. I think it's just, I guess, in brief, a situation that they have to manage carefully. Let, let's just put it that way. I, I, I hear you. I, I feel you. And, and I just think that if there's an opportunity for Max Verstappen to go to Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton isn't there, I don't think it matters how Red Bulls treated you throughout your career. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters what they're offering you in terms of salary. I think you make that move and I think Red Bull would expect him to make that move. But like you said, you don't need to go out and unnecessarily create friction, right? Yeah. Like yeah. ultimately you don't need to do that. But at the same time, I, I feel like they're probably going to extend liberties to Checo that they never offered to Gasly and they never offered to Albon because he's an established racer who's uh, had many podiums and has won uh, ultimately a Grand Prix and neither of those folks ever had. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, they're going to go in with the intentions of winning a championship this year. I mean, it it seems more, I don't want to say likely, because uh, beating Mercedes in any facet seems unlikely. 
But I mean, out of everything, I, I don't know what what would be more realistic for for Red Bull to try and you know hedge their bet on a drivers' championship or a, a constructors' championship. I don't know. But the the point is, I mean. They're, they're trying to go in all in this year. They've, they've got a strong driver lineup. Honda's bringing everything that they've got to, to, to the table and how this whole package really turns out. So that's, that remains to be seen. I mean, if you look at what Max had to say, they had their initial uh, shakedown with the car uh, this week. Uh, they, um, you know... Uh, he said that it's really hard to judge progress, right? Uh, so... You know, of course, they're on the demo tires and things like that. But, uh, but, but certainly, I mean, the thing is, they if if they have want to have any hope of uh, beating Mercedes, they have had to do a lot of catching up, and then they have to go at it hard, and they have to start getting results right from the very beginning. If we're three, four races into this thing, and Mercedes have been racking up one, two finishes the first three, four races of the year, and Red Bull has maybe got like a, a couple of P threes and top five finishes, you know. I mean, at that point, considering how strong uh, Mercedes is, I mean, th- th- at that point, it's like trying to close the barn door after the cows have all run away. Yeah, you know, to use a farm a analogy, analogy. <laughs> it, it really is. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting because uh, Red Bull, they did release some images of the RB16B car this uh, this week. And then they had, uh, you know, a filming day with uh, with Max and Sergio Perez at Silverstone on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, it's it's been, I guess, a bit of... Um, you know they haven't had any images released of this um you know uh of the shakedown that they did the only pictures they they uh, released were of the 2019 car and max was just uh you know really downplaying what it was he said that they were in demo tires and of course you know these demo tires and the fact that they can only run a maximum of 100 kilometers what what are you really going to get to to learn out of a, a new car at that uh, at that point but you know it's it's kind of compare that to what uh, Sergio Perez uh, was saying is that uh, he feels like the uh, that the new car has good potential. So <laughs> I, I don't know how, on one hand, you have the one guy, Max Verstappen, that's been with the team for a couple of years and, uh, you know, know these cars, uh, you know, intimately well. And then and, and the new boy on the block, the new kid on the block that uh, has just been in there for a couple of, you know, for, for a shakedown, it, uh, it's, it, it's interesting. But, uh, I mean, of course, he, you know, Sergio Perez is going to be extremely excited. I mean, it's going to be a, an extremely different car compared to what he's been used to at racing point in Force India over the past uh, number of years. But maybe more to the point is maybe not what he's been driving at Racing Point slash Force India pre-2020. I'd be interested to, to hear his take on how the Red Bull compares to the, the the pink Mercedes of last year. You know, that that's what I would find, you know, really interesting to hear once they get some serious testing mileage under their belts. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious as well. And I think what I'm probably most curious about is how the Mercedes power unit compares to the Honda power unit, mm. particularly. And again, I keep saying Honda power unit, and I, I'm going to have to start kind of changing my verbiage because as the, as the days continue to pass, we're getting closer and closer to that IP, that power unit becoming a Red Bull branded power unit. But ultimately, I, I'm really curious about how that unit performs in terms of power delivery, the fuel mapping, how responsive it is, um, how the electrification works, how how accessible that electrified power is. And again, I don't know how much how open he's going to be, but I would really love to hear from one of these drivers that have had the opportunity to experience both. Just sit down and talk about how the power delivery varies and you know what how you would attack a corner differently in this car versus this car because you know how responsive the power is going to be or you know that the 
aerodynamics of this car work better in this type of scenario. Again, I don't think we're going to see that. The other thought I had too, because you make that interesting point about the fact that in this case, Verstappen's been very conservative with his comments so far. And again, he, you know, he's been a part of this team now for 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. He's not a big media guy. He doesn't care about what his personality is. He's, he's not trying to be charming. He doesn't care if people like him, but ultimately I'm always very curious as to, especially at this time in the season where information is very, very valuable. Teams don't want to reveal too much. There's always kind of these allegations that teams are sandbagging, but I also (laughs) wonder sometimes if the teams themselves give the drivers talking points, like here's a couple of cue cards. If people are asking about the car, here's what you can say. And here's the things we definitely don't want you to say because if the drivers go out and they're like, Oh my God, this is incredible. You probably don't want them conveying that to the press because you don't want the other teams to know, right? Like it's one of those things where if you're a business, as far as the analysts are concerned, you want to temper expectations and temper expectations. But in this case as well, like if you did show up to the track with this absolute monster, you didn't necessarily want the rest of the field to know that at this point. And, and I remember that was really the case back in 2010 when the Braun team showed up and they realized right away that, oh my God, we have a monster. What can we do to conceal this from the rest of the field? Because we don't want them sticking their noses in and poking about too much. But but yeah, interesting comments nonetheless. And I'm always curious about how much uh, how much of what they say is fed to them by the teams. Yeah, it really makes you wonder. The other thing I was thinking about too, when you were saying sandbagging and then uh, and all those sorts of things as well, is it the the one thing I really find amazing is going back to just recently to 2019 when Ferrari and winter testing and the talk was, oh, you know, the car's the half to three quarters of a second f- faster than uh, the, than the Mercedes. And it just turned out to be a bit of a flash in the pan because you know, it turned out that that car was, you know, in, in you know in the long run was obviously not a competitor to the Mercedes a, at all. Totally. But I mean, they had a couple of really wickedly good test sessions in Barcelona, and everybody's all you know completely freaking. I, I was looking at it too. I was just going through our catalog and through the stats and the uh, the the episode that I did way back when, just specifically uh, talking about that, is still one of the the most downloaded and listened to shows in the history of the really. This yeah, it, it it really that was a real talking point uh, two years ago, and that uh, it, you know, reality turned out to be uh, you know really quite different. Uh, but it really kind of makes me uh, chuckle uh, quite a bit. Anyway, so just building more on what we were just talking about uh, just now about uh, you know closing the, the barn doors after the cows have run away. Uh, Christian Horner sat down figuratively or literally not literally but uh, figuratively speaking with motorsport.com this week and uh, he gave them an interview and uh, one of the things he had to say was that it was the lessons of 21 which is going to be the key to 2021 and uh, anyway so this is just a a very small portion of the interview and anyways uh, Christian had to say quote we don't want to in any way under underestimate the might of Mercedes but we've always been a challenger our our Pardon me. Our objective is, as I say, to take the lessons that we learned in 2020 into 2021, and hopefully the RB16B will be a good evolution. Mercedes are the clear favorites with seven consecutive titles, but we are excited about the challenge this season, and we won't give up our hunt for a fifth title, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, a number of lessons that they need to build on from, from last year, and not only do they need to have a strong start, they can't fade away, because, I mean, go to the middle of the season, when we were all talking about uh, Pierre Gasly after all the craziness we saw at the a- Italian Grand Prix and all the, the mayhem caused by the safety cars and, and all that, 
we were talking about Pierre Gasly when Max Verstappen was MIA. I mean, uh, not only was he, I, I mean, and, and that was a real low point in, in the season. And I, I go back to basically a year ago, the, the, this time when Christian Horner was saying, we're the most prepared now that we've been since 2011 or 2010 or something like that. And it really just did not manifest itself into the, the 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 start of the season. Of course, there was a massive wrench thrown into the works because of COVID and the, the 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 lockdowns and the shutdowns in the factories and stuff like that. But the thing is that uh, you know they you know, learning lessons is one thing, but you got to apply them and you got to do something with them because. I know I'm I'm sort of uh, you know beating the same drum here is that uh, they have to come out flying if they're not challenging Mercedes right off of the bat then it's 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 it, it doesn't matter if they start doing to by the time we get to Monaco it's going to be way too late. Yeah, I I completely agree. The one thing I I do want to credit Horner and and the Red Bull team for is despite this massive performance delta between Mercedes and and the rest of the field, they have shown a tremendous amount of consistency in the turbo hybrid era. And, and I'm sure some of our listeners remember, you know, Red Bull fresh off of a, a world title in 2013 to wrap up the V8 era. They went into preseason testing in 2014 and it was a disaster. Like that, that Renault V6 turbo hybrid had no business being on the grid. And that said, you know what, by the end of the season, Red Bull had scraped and clawed their way up to a, a, a relatively successful second place in the constructors. And you know what, despite the the Mercedes dominance and, and a couple of really strong years by Ferrari, they've consistently won races throughout this era. And, and it's funny too, because they've won races and not a ton. And I think on average, you know, this is a team that wins two to three in a couple of years, four races, but they win races Despite the fact that the team that they've been buying their power units from, you know, prior to the Honda period, mm-hmm. couldn't even get on the podium. Like, I, I just think that this is a, a, an incredibly effective operation and and I think they get everything imaginable out of their cars because you know they're winning races or they were winning races when the Renault power unit when the Renault works team couldn't get their own car onto the podium like I think they do some some really great stuff and and I think they need to be credited for that and and Mm -hmm. I know you and I have talked a lot about this but this is why I'm excited to see what they can do with a fully integrated organization where there's no dependencies on a third party to provide power units like for them to be able to bring all of this in-house to me is is obviously very very exciting yeah absolutely and uh, i'm really looking forward to seeing what they can do with it and you know they'll no doubt be a, a period of transition as they, they they move the operation from japan to the uk i mean it will be a bit of work in progress but it will be exciting to, to see what they are able to do with it and uh, you know for all the things that we talked about uh, last week but it is it is very very interesting uh, the, this whole uh, Red Bull situation. I, we we give them a, a ton of coverage and discussion on this show, but I, I think when there's at this point, and well, actually, I think we're we're going to take one final break here in a moment uh, because uh, I, I want to talk about uh, Ferrari because there was some very interesting yes. news that came out that. Uh, really i th- i think lends itself uh, to this conversation because we've been saying for weeks and months that um, 2021 is going to be an- another year where ferrari is going to be a non-factor but there was a big question mark thrown up uh, to that so maybe uh, th- this is a good point to break away right here for one final break and when we come back we'll pick up this uh, discussion and shift from blue and yellow and red to the the scarlet red of a ferrari so don't go away we'll be back in just a moment
All right. Well, welcome back to the show and uh, welcome to everybody, of course, watching on YouTube. Uh, Mark, we are going to sidestep a little bit uh, now from uh, Red Bull. And I'm going to let you take this one away because this is the one that uh, that you brought to uh, my attention a couple of uh, days ago. And this goes back to the uh, the, the Ferrari cheating scandal, which really kind of, I, I think, boiled uh, or got to a boiling point in 2019, about the time of the U.S. Grand Prix or the, the, the Brazilian Grand Prix, because that was the point uh, when, when Max Verstappen uh, just you know, came out and, uh, you know, quite bluntly said that uh, Ferrari were cheating. And then, of course, uh, in that offseason, we had the, the the secret deal that they worked uh, after you know, the, the FIA uh, you know, investigation. And there were a lot of questions as to what their punishment actually was. Now, there have been some things that, uh, that, that have kind of uh, slipped out uh, this week, and I, I think it really bears some discussion. Yeah, I was I was pretty fascinated by the story, and it's interesting because it was one of those things that I'd picked up on Reddit before I'd even seen it in the press. And I think what's really important is to kind of take a couple back, steps back, and it's believed, it's generally understood that what Ferrari was doing in 2019 was this. They were basically running a fuel map in their cars that circumvented the restrictions on the amount of fuel that could be pumped into the internal combustion engine at any given time. So one of the the formulas, one of the rules in Formula One is that at any given time, the fuel rate or the flow of fuel from the fuel tank through the fuel pump into the internal combustion engine can't exceed X. And what it's believed, what it's believed that Ferrari was able to do was they were able to determine when the sensor that's supplied by the FIA and Liberty and Formula One, so all the teams have to have a sensor, and it's one of those things that kind of monitors like, hey, we can say you can pump this much fuel, you need to have a sensor, and you need to provide the data to us, because we need to to make sure that you're not trying to circumvent that rule. And what it's believed Ferrari was potentially doing was they had basically cracked the algorithm associated with that sensor, and they knew when the sensor was taking readings. So what they were doing is in those intervals between the sensor taking the reading on the fuel flow, they were pumping more fuel into the motor. So the fuel would, or the sensor would take a reading, it would read the correct fuel. The engine would then pump additional fuel in and would cut out the sensor would take it. So they've done some ingenious work. And this is, again, what's believed that they were doing. So they were circumventing the regulations by pumping more fuel into the engine via this really sophisticated map that they were able to develop because they basically cracked the algorithm on the sensors. Now, we all know that they did something shady and Ferrari and the FIA had come forward and Liberty and said, hey, you know what? We have the secret of agreement based on the fact that Ferrari was or wasn't doing something. But in a Twitch stream this week, um, and this is one of those things that I don't understand either. So forgive me because I don't totally understand what Twitch is other than <laughs> it's a couple guys hanging out, playing video games, chatting. But in a Twitch stream this week, um, Miko Salo had made some comments about the fact that one of the penalties that Ferrari had incurred, and so did their partner teams, was that for the 2020 season, they were forced to run a modified fuel map, which restricted the amount of fuels that was being pumped into the internal combustion engine. So the rest of the teams were allowed to run X amount of fuel, but as a penalty for what they had done in 2019, Ferrari and their partner team were being restricted on the amount of fuel that they were able to 
to pump into the engines. So the engines themselves and the assembly and the infrastructure around them was largely similar to what they ran in 2019, but they were being restricted on how much fuel they could actually pump into that engine. And until this moment, no one had known about this. Nobody had speculated about this. Nobody had spoken about this. So all of a sudden, all of this newfound confidence that, well, to a lesser extent, Haas, but Alfa Romeo and Ferrari have about this upcoming season starts to make sense because what's understood is that that restriction is being lifted for the 2021 season. So this artificial limit that had been imposed on the Ferrari power unit teams for 2020 is now gone. And not only that, but they're also introducing new power units. So there's this supreme amount of confidence associated with all these Ferrari power unit teams. And I think there was a story this week as well um, that came out of the Alfa Romeo corner that spoke to the fact that they're really going to recover a large yeah. portion of the power deficit that they'd incurred last year. And when you pair this with that Twitch stream comment and that commentary, it all starts to make sense that, yeah, potentially there was this artificial restriction on the amount of fuel that these teams could pump last year as a punishment for what they were doing in 2019. So for me, I thought this whole scenario was fascinating. What were what were your thoughts? You know, I think my, mine were actually kind of cynical. Uh, as soon as I saw this story and I read it through after you sent it to me, I was like, well, if you really wanted to find like this whole modified fuel map and circumventing the sensor thing, the first thing that popped into my mind is if you really wanted to find out if these guys were cheating, you should have just gone through the team roster and find out if there are any former Volkswagen engineers <laughs> working for them, you know, because, you know, th- this really sounded, you know, very similar to that whole emissions yes. defeat device yep. that, uh, that, that, that uh, Volkswagen got into massive trouble for, you know, several years ago. And it it is, like you say, it was some ingenious work, if that's indeed what they did, to, to try and circumvent it, because basically they know that this it's switching on and off at, at these times. It's just like, okay, well, we just make it look like it's complying whenever this thing is measuring, and then at the other times, it's just like, just pump as much gas through the system as we can and get the associated power out of it. So it, it really is uh, fascinating, and especially like when you just have referred to the comments of uh, Alpha Team Principal uh, Frederick Vasseur, that uh, you know he seems quite bullish on the uh, the the upcoming season, and uh, you know there, there's a fair amount. Well, I wouldn't you know, a lot of positivity, but he seems you know quite confident uh, that they're going to fare a lot better in 2021 than they did in 2020, and it um, you know this it, it if it t- turns out to be true, it will have been an, an astonishing slip of. Um, you know what what reality was and it would have come like you say in the the most bizarrest and unexpected uh, places in a twitch stream of two guys you know basically talking while they're playing video games i i I think it was already a weird story to begin with just the way that it all kind of shook down a couple of years ago and the whole penalties but i'm just like if there was any sort of more weirdness that uh, could come out of this story you know this would have this seems so fitting to to go with i got And I just got to say as well, like, you know what, for all of those of us in the sport that maybe aren't Ferrari fans, uh, I think we all wanted blood. Like we Mm. wanted Liberty to come in and the FIA to come in and say, Ferrari, you cheated. We're going to share with the world what you did. And here's a hundred million euro fine. That's what we all wanted. But the reality is if you were to hang Ferrari out to dry like that, you were to expose your most prominent team, 
the long-term damage that you could inflict on the mm-hmm. sport could be monumental. Like, okay, so be it. You get that fine out of Ferrari. What's to say they don't walk away from the sport? What's to say you don't cause irreparable damage to the sport? Like, there were some really significant negatives that could be a byproduct of doing that. But I think yep. what they ultimately did here was ingenious because, you know what, by saying, hey, look, you know what? We're going to have a secret of punishment. We're not going to share it. But what you can't do in 2020 is you can't run a fuel map that uses 100% of the allowed fuel. You're restricted 80% because what that in turn is going to do is make them uncompetitive. They're not going to cash in on championship points and you're going to indirectly find them anyways, because they're not going to cash in on the championship points that would ultimately have been there for them. So it's kind of a really ingenious way of financially penalizing them without causing irreparable reputational damage to the sport. And you know what, again, if this was, if this was the NFL or major league baseball or the premier league, you know what, there's, there's some sense of obligation to transparency in these type of things. Formula one's different. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's principally a privately held organization. You've got 10 well-heeled owners that are out there looking for their, the best interests of themselves. Like what they did here actually made sense in terms of protecting the long-term viability of the sport. So when these comments slipped out on that Twitch stream and you start thinking about it, like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense that that's potentially what they did. And it would also explain why you saw this monumental drop-off in performance with these teams last year. It wasn't just because Ferrari couldn't run that really shady fuel map. It's because they were being told, you can't even run 100% of the fuel that's being allowed by the other team. So interesting story. And again, we don't know if any of this is true, but it seems to make sense. And I don't know why somebody would have made something up like that. It just seems very, very far-fetched to be a concept and especially for somebody like him like this is a guy who has connections obviously within the world of formula one and the ferrari team i think there's probably something to it yeah, you know, and, and you raised a really, really good point there that uh, they do get financially penalized rather than forcing them to cut a huge check for in 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 the form of a massive fine of fifty million dollars or hundred million dollars, right. whatever it is. You just cut them a smaller check at the end of the year because you know they've they've earned less prize money out of the collective pot. Exactly. You know, that I think is uh, you know as ingenious as it was for them to circumvent that uh, that that sensor in the car allegedly and supposedly. That is totally. also an ingenious way of uh, of punishing. Them themselves. I mean, but you also you also get the buy-in from the other teams, right? So if I'm McLaren now, I'm cool with this because there's going to be more championship points for me and more prize money for me. So it's something that probably satisfied all of the teams, and I think this is probably one of the reasons why the other teams didn't protest as much as I think we wanted them to, because they recognized that this was also a good opportunity for them to cash in on some additional prize money in 2020. Yeah, because you know it was really funny because I, I mean there were some token complaints and comments in the media after that uh, that judgment came down but uh, you would have thought that uh, if the, the 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 transgression was as egregious as they were all complaining about in the 2019 season you would think what was basically looked like a, a slap on the wrist and some really shady privately worked deal between the two uh, teams. You think that the other nine teams would be out there screaming bloody murder that uh, that exactly. they, you know, but other than a couple of really sort of token and and really half hearted complaints, it really was almost a, a non event. 
but uh, you know, it's it, it certainly it's going to be interesting to see how these cars uh, come out and and <laughs> and if uh, they're as still just as close to Williams as they were last year, Ferrari. I mean, this year, then we'll okay, okay, maybe it wasn't the engines after all. Maybe maybe they're larger issues. But uh, ahead of the season, they've actually uh, overhauled their chassis department. Uh, I mean, they they've made a number of changes uh, off the track over the uh, the, the the past year, and uh, this is just uh, another one. I mean, uh, they've got uh, four areas. What is a vehicle concept, performance engineering, chassis project engineering, and vehicle uh, operations. So, you know, they're they're doing quite a lot of work uh, off of the track, and I, I imagine they're they're just uh, having to restructure everything because, you know, they're going to have to downsize now that we're in a cap world, and they're going to have to Great redistribute point. Point. those, uh, you know, the the the, the mental, and the intellectual brilliance that they have within the uh, within the, uh, the, the the organization, just streamline that and make it as efficient as possible. You know, the, and, and I don't want to kind of fall back, but you, you made a point a couple of minutes ago that I want to touch on as well, which is if, if, if what we were just talking about is true and that there was a penalty that was applied to Ferrari and their sister teams last year, which restricted the amount of fuel that they could run via their map, um, it could really rewrite the narrative of this year because less so you, but me, I've been very, very cautious about what Ferrari could be in 2021. In fact, to be honest, I've completely um, discarded the the potential for them to be competitive. And you know what, even Mm -hmm. as recently as last week, I said, look, you know what, second place is is Red Bulls. Like they could potentially chase a championship because there won't be a competitive Ferrari. But the reality is if, if that was the principal reason why they weren't competitive last year was because of a artificial fuel map that they were forced to run by the FIA, if that restriction is lifted, they're going to recover a significant amount of power without doing anything mechanical to these cars. And if you pair that potentially with, with chassis tweaks and these other things, like this team could potentially be much more competitive than maybe we expect it to be. Now, your point is also a good one though. You know what? Obviously with the, the cost cap now upon us, Ferrari, like Mercedes, is one of those teams that is going to shed not dozens, but potentially hundreds of headcount in their operations. And we've also given Ferrari credit as well that they've worked to get find homes for as many of their personnel as they can and their sister teams. But that's also something that this team is obviously going to have to adjust to because in the past, maybe you have a team of 30 uh fluid aerodynamicists, and maybe now it's three, and that that's a very different reality. But yeah, just that thought about if it really was an artificial performance dip last year driven by a fuel map that was imposed upon them by the FIA, I'm now very curious to see how much power they regain this year with doing almost nothing. Yeah, it, it could re- completely rewrite the narrative of that we've been yes. talking about for, for months now that uh, 2021 is going to be um, Mercedes versus Red Bull. I mean, they, they could come back, Ferrari that is. And uh, it could be like the surprise story. I'm kind of using, you know, saying that in inverted commas here, but it really could rewrite that narrative, and uh, it, it's totally. potentially a, a game changer. So, I mean, you heard it here first. Please timestamp <laughs> this because what we find is people steal our steal our content <laughs> all the time. We've actually criticized some team principals with stealing content and storylines from this podcast, but uh, you heard it here first. Well, we we all know that Christian Horner is an avid fan of this uh, the, this podcast. You know. <laughs> I say yep. that obviously rather jokingly. It would be awesome if he is. And finally, uh, and we're just always jumping back to Red Bull or Red Bull-related uh, topics, but uh, Danny Ricardo, former Red Bull driver, current McLaren driver, said that uh, the sprint F1 races that have been uh, proposed uh, must not devalue 
the uh, the the or devalue race victories, and he says he's now less scared of the sprint races uh, that they're, they're going to have in Formula One, uh, and uh, compared to say like these reverse grids and other gimmicky things, as long as it doesn't actually devalue the uh, the, the the race victory itself. And I must say that I, I've really warmed to the idea of these uh, sprint races, and I like the fact that they're only going to trial them in a certain number of races, and I think that is the ideal way to do it. I mean. I guess that there's never really a perfect time to to uh, to trial something like this, but to a certain extent, this is kind of a, a bridging year between one era of Formula One and and the next. And if you're going all in to really, uh, you know, come out with a whole new generation, a whole new, uh, you know, well, baseball, a, a whole new era for Formula One next year with the new cars, then of course you want to try and increase the spectacle as well. So it makes complete sense that they're going to try these sprint races at a couple of races, several races this year to see how they work. And uh, it, it's interesting to hear some, uh, you know, concept or some feedback from uh, Danny Ricardo on the concept and the ideas that they have. And uh, he says, uh, you know, quote, competition is obviously what I love most. So I do, uh, I would love to do more races and less practice or whatever. So I kind of goes uh, does go towards probably what I would want but I would think that the biggest thing I want is uh, an F1 win to still feel as big as what it should be I don't ever want an F1 win to feel diluted or just somewhat lower than it should so if they do bring in another race on the weekend as long as it kind of makes uh, or carries the same value then I guess I'm certainly more open-minded towards that end quote and I I would uh, completely agree with uh, Ricardo's comments yeah, I feel him. I, I completely do. And Ricardo, uh, to his credit, he was very much like you and I were two or three weeks ago in his criticism of the concept of the sprint race. And I think partly that's because the sprint race came so quickly on the heels of the conversation about the reverse grid. But I've totally warmed to it. I, I want to see it. I would hate to see it dilute, as he says, uh, the the uniqueness and the notoriety associated with winning a Grand Prix on a Sunday. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, you could do some really creative stuff with the sprint races, right? Like this doesn't necessarily need to be the staple potentially of every race weekend, but what if you had four race weekends a year where you had a sprint race on the Saturday and maybe these are kind of considered majors. Like, you know how you have majors in tennis and you have majors in golf. Like what if you had four major race weekends a year And at these pinnacle kind of flagship events, you've got the Sunday Grand Prix, you have a sprint race on the Saturday for points, you have qualifying on Friday, you have practice, like you could build some really cool things around that. And then all of a sudden, think about it from a marketing perspective, like, hey, maybe Australia or maybe Austin or maybe Brazil, like you could have four weekends, which become these absolute kind of flagship tent pole events on the race calendar because, hey, you know what? We've got a sprint race. We've got a Grand Prix. We're going to have additional, like you could do some really cool stuff like this. So what I don't potentially want to see is I don't necessarily want to see a sprint race every weekend, but I would love to see Liberty package this up and have like three or four majors a year. So major yeah, race super weekends. weekends. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. It could be the British Grand Prix, for instance, simply because you're going to pack 300,000 people in. But I think they could do something cool with this. Yeah, that, that is something I've never actually considered. And I think that would be really, really awesome. And and I've certainly really warmed the idea. I, I was really, really um, quite negative towards the idea of the, the whole reverse grid thing. Like to me, it just uh, kind of seemed a little... Uh, a little bit silly and, uh, you know, for, for many of the reasons that we've talked about uh, over the past uh, couple of uh, months. But I've really warmed to the idea of these sprint races. And, and your idea, I think, is absolutely fantastic. Excuse me. You know, that spicy, uh, you know, curry that I had for dinner is really haunting me now. <laughs> 
Anyways, before we wrap it up, I just want to go back and I completely uh, spaced out on this and I, and I apologize to uh, our listener, David Orndorff, because it, it was his email I was referring to at the beginning of the show that I was going to come back to. And I should really do it because uh, some of the dis- discussion we had about uh, Max Verstappen uh, leaving Red Bull, that came from uh, David's uh, email and I just like uh, to read a bit, bit of it. And he says, uh, hi, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm a big fan of the show and keep up the great work. Uh, I've been think- thinking a lot about Verstappen leaving leaving Red Bull for Mercedes, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that would be a bad idea, at least until after 2022, because because it seems reasonable to assume that the, the, at least the top teams all have an equal shot of being the best with the new regulations. Obviously, Haas is less likely to be number one than Mercedes, but I figure Red Bull and Mercedes have pretty equal chances. So it seems like a move that doesn't uh, have much of a, an upside. Max is with the team that is b- built around him and has shown that he is their number one. Why leave that? Thoughts? Thanks, David Orndorff. You know, I, I think I, I think we probably address this, right? Like within the show. So I think this is a great email. And David, thank you for listening. Thank you so much for reaching out. And, and I know I didn't say this um, earlier, but as well to Brian, who also sent us a fantastic email. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reaching out. I, I think we really address those, those questions, right? Like ultimately I race in Formula One because I want to win a world championship. And when I leave the sport, that's something that the history books will reflect that I was or wasn't a world champion. And if I feel that there's an opportunity to win a world championship with Mercedes, or I think there's a greater likelihood, I'm doing my career and my historical record a disservice, irregardless of how well I may be treated and whether that car is built around me. At the end of the day, this is a business. And let's not forget as well that if Max had a really bad year, there's no guarantee that he's going to be re-upped like we've seen how ruthless red bull can be with their drivers we saw the (laughs) way that ricardo was treated that gasly was treated that albon was treated this is a business and and ultimately i'm in it as a driver for money but more so than money i'm in it for the notoriety and the opportunity to become a world champion and if there's an opportunity for me to go to red bull and i believe that that's a better car and a better package I'm going to go to Mercedes and I'm going to pursue that opportunity. Now, all of that said, obviously he's under contract for 2021. And when we go into 2022, the the specifications and the salary cap, the salary cap, um, the operating cap and the restrictions around the economics and finance of the sport change drastically. So hopefully there'll be greater parity. And potentially at that point, maybe the way you're treated and your relationship with your team becomes that much more important because the performance delta between a Red Bull and a Mercedes should clearly close pretty dramatically anyways. But as long as that Delta is where it is today, if I'm Max and there's an opportunity to go to Mercedes, I'm going to Mercedes because I want to win a world title. And that's more important to me than anything because the record books aren't going to show that, hey, Max had a good relationship with Christian Horner. Nobody cares, (laughs) but they will care if he won a world title. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you really nailed it uh, with, with that point right there is that the, the what, what's written in the history books is what everybody's going to talk about and remember. If Max goes to uh, a Mercedes and wins a world title there, they'll remember that. If he wins a world championship with Red Bull, everybody will remember that. But if, uh, you know, he has his best season at Red Bull and had 100 points more than he did previously, but still finished 100 points behind the world champion... Who cares? Nobody's ever going to remember that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and if that opportunity to go to the biggest, best, most successful team currently in Formula One, you would be a, a little bit, uh, you know, 
yeah, you'd be a little bit crazy to let that one go, regardless of where you where you're at. So yeah, great question. So let, uh, let me yeah. ask you a question. Sure, go ahead. Who finished second in 2013? 2013. I'm going to go with. Um, Gosh, 2013. So that would have been Seb's last uh, world championship. I'm going to go with, um, gosh, who would have, I'm going to go with Fernando Alonso. So you're right. So you <laughs> kind of ruined my point. Ugh. You but know, no, actually, I, I, again, in all fairness, I, I, I actually kind of like, I, I, I just kind of grabbed that one out of the air. I didn't actually know that. No, but but I mean, I think it still proves the point, right? Like you you know, and you host an F1 podcast and you have for many years, like you probably should know. But I think even the fact that I had to Google it to confirm my suspicion that, hey, it was Fernando, but I don't automatically know, right? But yeah. we both know instantly that Sebastian Vettel won that year. Yeah. And no one's going to know that Mark Webber finished third because we haven't mentioned Mark Webber's name on the show in five years, right? <laughs> but we both know Sebastian Vettel because he was he was a champion. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what it comes comes uh, comes down to everybody remembers who's the uh, who's the winner. So that's it Mark, you know, I I'm looking at the, the the time counter here on the podcast. This is the longest one that we've done and honestly, I'm completely talked out uh, for for this week. And what with this, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, uncomfortableness uh, coming uh, from, you know, bubbling up from dinner. I, I'm ready to call it a night. Go, and, go through the cupboard upstairs and see if we've got any Tums or something to settle this one down. So, you know, guys, thank you so much again for listening and watching on uh, on YouTube. Thank you for the emails and the tweets uh, this week. Please keep them coming. We're looking forward to, uh, you know, we, we love and we read all of them. And uh, we're really looking forward to, uh, you know, counting down the days. February 25th uh, today. 31 days until the season opener and it can't uh, come quick enough uh, and as always if you want to get in touch with me and mark please do so on the, the email at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com or on twitter at scuderiaf1pod get in touch say hi ask a question leave a comment it's all good and uh, enjoy your weekend enjoy your week uh you know take it easy we got to, it's going to get to real pretty quick and until then until next week on behalf of myself and mark hamilton all the best and we'll talk to you guys again soon bye for now